Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. There are Bibles on the welcome table where you first came in. If you didn't bring one with you, please grab one. We'd love for you to follow along with us. How are you going to know that I'm not just like making up my own words? Sometimes I just say weird things and I'm not even trying to. It just comes out. Right, right. If you've been around long enough, you know me. You're not the only weird one, Jared, number one. Jared, number two, is just as weird. Um, all right. Hey, this morning we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to be looking at part four of a study I've titled The Household of God. Our main text in these studies has been Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And in part four... For today, we're going to be focusing in on verses 20 through 22, but we're going to read those four verses together just to start our time and keep the context here. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, he said, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In verses 19 through 22, Paul is driving home what he's just been writing about regarding how important and amazing this unity, this new humanity, this new family is that Jesus died. He shed his blood to bring about. And now we're seeing in these verses three things that we've been made a part of. God's kingdom and God's family, which we looked at two weeks ago in verse 19. And then as we're going to look at today in verses 20 through 22, God's temple But before we get into verses 20 through 22, I want us to see and keep in mind the uniting work that Jesus has done, which Paul writes about in verses 14 through 22, that in verse 14, Jesus has made both Gentile and Jew one. We see this kind of reoccurring theme throughout this chapter, one and one and together Verse 15, he's created in himself one new man from the two. Niners fans and Raiders fans. Jew and Gentile. We can all be one in Christ Jesus. You might have your differences. You might not see things the same way. Made one new man from the two. I'm kidding, obviously. but Verse 16, reconciled them both to God in one body. Again, one, 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 one. Verse 18, through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, we've been made fellow citizens, members of the household of God. We're together. Verse 22, we're being built together, together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Do we catch what Paul is trying to share with us? Do we see The Spirit of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul trying to make something really clear to you and to me because there's always going to be things that we are going to be different about. Why? Because we're not the same person. You're different than me. We look different. I mean, unless we've got a bunch, unless we're all identical twins in this room, which is not even, I think, biologically possible. But if that happened, like, There's still different personalities, different likes and dislikes. Some of you might have heard Jared talking about sushi, and you're just like, eh. And you're lurching inwardly. Samantha is feeling that way this morning. So what can we make? How how can we have a oneness when we're all so different? Because all of our differences, I don't know if you've seen this, all of our differences just divide us. We see that all across the world, in every neighborhood, in every family, within every friend group, at your workplace, the things that we're different in 
we divide over. It is so natural for us, right? Why do Raiders fans and Niners fans have such a problem? You're, you're in the same Bay Area. One wins. But you know what? Someone's going to lose always, right? So there's got to be something greater. There's got to be a greater work that would unite us together. There's got to be something that's bigger than what we, who we root for. Or, or what kind of food we like, or our, our, our cultural background, our, our nation of origin, our, our citizenship, our language even. There's got to be something bigger and deeper than all of that that can then unite us together where we can have this kind of unity that Paul's saying Jesus died for us to have it. That uniting work started with us being united with Christ through his free gift of salvation, being taken from a position of being far off and estranged and separated to being brought near and reconciled to God. But then Jesus went further than just uniting us individually to himself, to him uniting redeemed individuals to each other. Not just a unity among Gentiles. We're like, well, we're still all Gentiles, so of course we can kind of bond over that. Or even a unity among Jews. Like, okay, we have this thing over here. But a unity seen in Jesus creating a new humanity. One race made up of both Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ Jesus. And and though there could be a multitude of physical, cultural, national, tribal, linguistic, racial things that could potentially divide us from each other, keep us from embracing this oneness that Jesus has created and provided through his his blood. Paul is making it clear that there are greater things, greater spiritual, spiritual truths and realities that need to be elevated and embraced and actually seen as truer and infinitely more important than whatever it is that might threaten to keep us apart that should dismantle and destroy all the potential points of division. So what are those greater things, those greater spiritual truths and realities that should dismantle and destroy All the potential points of division, whether physical, cultural, national, tribal, linguistic, racial, your sports team, your kind of food you like, well, that we've been made part of God's kingdom. We've been made part of God's family. But also, as we're going to see in verses 20 through 22, that we've been made a part of God's temple. Our unity, unity, our oneness in Christ is not just seen in us now having the same heavenly citizenship as as fellow citizens of God's kingdom, with us having the same king and all that that means for us. It's not just seen in us now having the same father and being brothers and sisters uh, to one another in in the family of God with a bond that's deeper than any blood sort of relation and all that that means for us. But our unity, our oneness in Christ is also seen in how we as the church, the body of Christ, the temple of God, all have the same foundation. We've been built upon the same chief cornerstone with us all being fitted together, built together as a holy temple for a a dwelling place of God in the spirit. These are those greater things that should trump all the other things that could potentially want to split us apart. But how often do we focus on the physical things and we we just go instantly sometimes? Oh, well, I don't don't want to have anything to do with that person. I mean, I know maybe they're even a fellow believer, but ah, I don't like the way you worship the Lord. Right? And, and it can be so easy for us to just, we just 
cut people off, we separate, we divide. And, and I, I can only imagine from heaven that Jesus is going, do you understand, do you get what I did, what I bore upon the cross, what I endured to bring you together? And, and to know how grieving to the heart of God division in the body of Christ is. Now, there are legitimate things to divide over when it comes to essentials of the faith, clear doctrines in the Bible when it speaks of the deity of Christ and, and, and other things. There are things that we would divide over, but oftentimes we're not dividing over stuff like that. It's secondary, dumb, you know, practical sort of things that were just like, that doesn't even matter. In the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. And for us to grab a hold of this, that, that, that Paul is trying to emphasize how important this is, what Jesus has done, and what he's desiring for us to just embrace and walk in as the people of God. So, Let's dig into this some more. Read verse 20 with me. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The the first things we notice about the household or the church of God from verse 20 is that it's built on a specific and crucial foundation with a specific and crucial cornerstone in that foundation. You don't have to have a construction background to grab a hold of this, okay? Because I don't. Every well-built building has to have a foundation. It has to have a foundation. And the same is true of the church as it's likened to a temple. Notice, though, who the foundation was laid by, the apostles and prophets. And this is so important for us to be clear about because the foundation is not the apostles and prophets themselves, but who the apostles and prophets' lives and ministries and writings were focused on and centered upon, and that's Jesus. The foundation the apostles and prophets laid is the one who is also the chief cornerstone. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the foundation and he's the chief cornerstone of his church. And again, if you're not coming from a construction background, and I don't know that these are really used even in modern days, but a cornerstone was a large stone at the corner of a foundation. I think at one point a stone was excavated at the Temple Mount back in the day. And, and one stone, one stone in that foundation was 28 feet long by like 8 to 10 feet tall. So when we're talking about cornerstone, we're not like, well, then there's this little piece at the corner. It's got its part. Pretty important, I think. So like, it was crucial Everything was built off of that stone. It was the most crucial part of the foundation and the building that was to take place. Without that most crucial piece, the cornerstone, the foundation would not be straight. The walls would not stay up once you started building upon the foundation. It would eventually fall. The building would be destroyed. According to one uh, commentator writing about the cornerstone, he said, In the East, it was considered to be even more important than the foundation. And another commentator said it denotes the stone placed at the extreme corner so as to bind the other stones in the building together, the most important stone in the structure, the one on which its stability depended. Those insights just reinforce how important and crucial Jesus, as the chief cornerstone of his church, is and how important and crucial he is to our lives personally as both cornerstone and foundation. But with the building and foundation in mind, check out what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And just to give some context, if you're not super familiar with the church in Corinth there in Greece, um, Paul was used instrumentally by God to start the church. And then Paul moved on, and another guy named Apollos came, and he came and started ministering in the church, and he was used by the Lord as well. Well, the church in Corinth dealt with um, a lot of uh, favoritism. They had their favorite like Bible teacher, their favorite guy. I'm a Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. I like Peter. I like Paul. I like Apollos better. And Paul's like, you guys are dumb. Basically, not really. He didn't say that, but he's like, you guys are carnal. You're carnal, and you're acting like kids. Like, get it together. Like, you're dividing over who you think is like the, the spiritual, like, sort of like um, mentor in your life. Like, it's all about Jesus, not even about these different people. But Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 5 through 11. He said, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We don't matter. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. There's unity there. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Notice, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, God's grace, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Notice verse 11, though. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul and the other apostles and prophets in the first century church had a foundation-laying role. Especially as it, as it was the apostles, many of whom also functioned in the role of a prophet when it came to being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write inerrant, infallible Holy Scripture, which we have preserved for us in the pages of the New Testament, who were used instrumentally by the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel, to plant churches, and to write down what completed the canon of Scripture. They had a foundation-laying role, but the foundation itself, as we see Paul say in that passage of 1 Corinthians, can only be one thing. There can be no other foundation but Jesus Christ himself. And I just want to follow that up because of, in our day, there's still people that take to themselves the title of apostle. Uh, there's a movement even called the New Apostolic Reformation, not biblical. Uh, the Mormon church has, has their own apostles. There are 12 apostles. So, the problem when we don't have a biblical perspective on these sorts of things is then you can fall into some weird doctrine or even in the context of the Mormon church, which is a cult, right? They, they have good intentions, but they're not saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So they're apostles and if you do any research for yourself, and this is just, take it for what this is, right? So if one apostle comes along and he says some really crazy things, now in hindsight, another one comes along later on and goes, no, actually, it's different now. Something's different and can undo what the other apostle said that was supposedly inspired by the Lord and, and is like biblical truth in their minds. When you have an a, a, a incorrect understanding of this foundation-laying role of the apostles and prophets, and you think that, that 
that has continued on now into present day, where is the end to that? Continued revelation, new things. Well, I'm speaking from the Lord. This is from the Lord. Self-appointed apostles, self-appointed prophets. There is no continuing revelation in authoritative, divinely inspired scripture being written still today. And there are no modern day apostles or prophets in the primary sense as there was in the first century church. The foundation of Jesus' church has already been laid by the apostles and prophets in the pages of the New Testament. Their ministry continues on through the Bible. We don't need more apostles and prophets in the primary sense. There are none. Why? Because the ministry of the apostles and prophets, those who were called by God, appointed by God, who walked in the same time of Jesus even, witnessed his resurrection, some of those things that qualified someone to be an apostle, their ministry continues. God's still working. He's still speaking. Through his life-giving word, these things that God inspired them to write down, they're still ministering today. God's still using it. People are still getting saved today. 2,000 years later, this isn't changing. The words on the page aren't changing. You might get a different translation, and so maybe it has like, it kind of took a different angle on a word, but it's still the same thing. It's rooted in the same Greek word. But God's word is alive. But we got to understand, we got to know that the foundation has been laid. It's already there. It's Jesus. We're not changing that. We can't gussy that thing up because Jesus doesn't need any gussying. He's perfect. We're the ones who are weird. We're the ones who make things weird. We have our traditions. We lump on and, new, and we do this thing and then things get all crazy. And it's like, the Bible, when it's just God's word, we just keep it to God's word, man, stuff just goes so much smoother, goes so much better. But, but that all lets us know that God's word, the Bible, is the foundation for the church and our lives individually. Why? Because the Bible points us to Jesus. These are they which speak of me, Jesus spoke. We're being built upon that foundation and quarterstone, being built upon Jesus himself and his word, which again points us to him. But look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 21 and 22. He said, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. These two verses are dependent on verse 20. Without Jesus as our foundation, as our cornerstone, we would have nothing stable and sure and enduring to build the church and our lives upon. And we'd have no temple, no church at all. Check out what Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe said about this section of Ephesians. He wrote, The foundation for this church was laid by the apostles and New Testament prophets. Jesus Christ is the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, and the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118.22, Isaiah 8, verse 14. The cornerstone binds the structure together. Jesus Christ has united Jews and Gentiles in the church. This reference to the temple would be meaningful to both the Jews and the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Jews would think of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and the Gentiles would think of the great temple of Diana. Both temples were destined to be destroyed, but the temple Christ is building will last forever. I will build my church, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. The Holy Spirit builds this temple by taking dead stones out of the pit of sin, Psalm 40, verse 2, giving them life and setting them lovingly into the temple of God, 1 Peter 2, 5. This temple is fitly framed together as the body of Christ. We see those passages of Ephesians referenced there. 
so that every part accomplishes the purpose God has in mind. Paul has identified the foundation and the chief cornerstone, but now he gives insight into what is built on that foundation. In verse 21, he says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That word building there carries the sense of a building project. Now, we already saw in verse 10 of this chapter that we're God's workmanship, right? We're his masterpiece, we're his poem, we're his work of art. He's molding and shaping and and writing individually. But here we see that the church is God's building project corporately. He's looking at all the material he has, Gentiles and Jews together as one united people, his church, and he's building something of us together. He's fitting us together, connecting us together to form a coherent whole as stones for a building. He's growing his church into a holy temple in the Lord. You and I, in the body of Christ, are are part of God's sanctifying work. This, This fitting together that God's doing, he's doing through the lives of each other in each other's lives. I believe in a a marriage, a husband and wife are, are sort of the greatest source of sanctification oftentimes that God does. Because you're together and and you see each other's flaws more than anybody else does. You know stuff about the other person that no one else does. You know the stuff that bums them out and brings them joy. and, And man, God uses a husband and a wife to sanctify one another. There's a shaping, right? There's an accountability. There's an encouragement. There's a sharpening that happens. But what about in the body of Christ? Are we just all, he just throws a bunch of stones on the foundation, but like far apart? Like, well, there's them over there. And then, and they're kind of misshapen. That rock's kind of weird. I don't know how stuff's going to fit together very well. There's going to be a gap in the wall. You imagine if like just, you threw a bunch of round stones. And there's no filler, right? You're not putting concrete in there too. You just have a bunch of round stones and you're trying to, you're trying to make that into something where it's going to be this cohesive thing. You're like, this is a kind of drafty, kind of weird. But if you've ever been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there's very, you know, very limited amount of things that you can see there because of the, um, because it's been given over to uh, the Muslims there, right? So it's very controlled. But, it, but when you get to go down and you see part of what that temple, that kind of original foundation looked like, even though there's nothing there and they deny that there was ever a temple there, um, those stones are so fitted together, you can't even fit a piece of paper in between them. Again, 28 feet long by 10 feet tall by, let's say, 6 to 8 feet deep. Tons and tons, thousands and thousands of pounds. And to be able to shape those stones, get them to where they're fitted together in such a way like that. And and Paul is saying, that's what God is wanting to do with you and me in the body of Christ, the temple of God. Because we'd rather just stay misshapen. Oftentimes, we can kind of like we're okay with kind of where we're at. Maybe we're not totally okay, but I don't really want to have to change or be shaped to be able to fit up with somebody else in the body of Christ. Let's just, you do you, I'll do me. And we're together, and we come together on Sunday, and maybe we join a home group when home group season's happening. And, you know, but really fit together in that sort of way, shaped by the Lord in that sort of way where that temple is going to be all that God desires it to be, that means that there's there's a responsibility upon each of us to let God hammer on us at times. 
to maybe even have somebody else be used by the Lord to, to chisel and to sand away some of those sharp edges that are there. And, and in our flesh, and our pride, we don't like that. I don't want that. I'll let the Lord deal with me. I answer to the Lord. And you do. And I do. But you're not an island, and neither am I. We're not, I God, God doesn't liken us to islands. You're like the Hawaiian islands. Look at you all spread out. But you're all part of Hawaii. Aloha, right? No, he's like, your stones in the building that have been shaped, molded, hammered on, sanded in, in such a way to where, man, you are so fitted together. You're not just like, oh, look at all those stones. No, you go, look at that building. There's one thing to be seen, and that's the temple of God. And I just wonder how often God's going, hey, I want to do something in your life. And you know what? How I'm going to do it, I'm going to use somebody else to accomplish it. Or I'm going to use you to accomplish that in somebody else's life. So that that fitting together really does happen. You know, if we thought about ourselves, right, and we're being kind of just, we're just being honest, we're being realistic, and we think about God like this, this, this spiritual temple that he's, built, he's building and he has built as his church, and we think about us being stones in that building, we, we, we might, it's likely, if we're really being honest with ourselves, we would go, I don't know why God would choose me as a stone to put there. Because there's a lot of misshapenness. This stone's been burnt and cracked, and there's chunks missing. And maybe there's not a lot of stability that I see in my life. I don't know why God would want to make me part of this thing that he's doing. But you know what's great? He doesn't go off of how you feel about yourself. He goes, look what I can do in you. Look at the work I can do in you if you'll just yield yourself to me. And to know that God's going, man, you were out in the pit and now I've made you a living stone in my house. We're not off in the quarry. We're on the foundation. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> the Gentiles in Ephesus, and we looked at this early on in our studies of Ephesians, they had the temple of Diana. They thought it fell from heaven. Whoa! Divine! Right? But... The presence of the one true God, Yahweh, did not dwell there, never had. Diana was a false god, man-made. And the Jews in Ephesus in Paul's day had a temple in Jerusalem. As Paul's writing this, the temple still stood. It, didn't, it wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. A, a temple to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But the presence, the glory of God had had departed from there hundreds of years earlier. We see this in the book of Ezekiel. He's writing about the glory ascending from the temple, like taken off. It's like, oh, okay. So there's still stuff happening here. All this, all this form and function, all these things are, look at all these rituals and all the sacrifice, but the glory of God hadn't been there in hundreds of years already. As Wearsby said, both temples were destined to be destroyed, but the temple Christ is building will last forever. It's a holy temple being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There, guys, there's temples all over, still in our world. But the presence of God does not dwell there. In this temple, this church is supposed to be holy, Different, unique, set apart. 
a holy temple. And that's something God is doing. See, those who have put their trust in Christ have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We saw this in chapter 1, which means every saved person has the Spirit of God living inside of them. Right? You couldn't have greater access to God than just putting your faith in Jesus Christ, having the Spirit of God coming, in li- coming to live inside of you. You couldn't have greater access, greater closeness to the Lord than Him living in you. But here, Paul is referring to the church corporately, the big C church, being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, meaning that the church is a place where the Spirit of God dwells among us and inhabits us as a united body of believers. Check out what William MacDonald said about this. He wrote, This growing building of living materials is described as a holy temple in the Lord. The word Paul used for temple referred not to the outer courts, but to the inner shrine, not the suburbs, but the sanctuary. He was thinking of the main building of the temple complex, which housed the most holy place. There God dwelt, and there he manifested himself in a bright, shining cloud of glory. There are several lessons for us here, he says. Number one, God indwells the church. Saved Jews and Gentiles form a living sanctuary in which he dwells and where he reveals his glory. Second, this temple is holy. It is set apart from the world and dedicated to him for sacred purposes. And then number three, as a holy temple, the church is a center from which praise Worship and adoration ascend to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In this wonderful temple, believing Gentiles have an equal place with believing Jews. It should thrill us to read this, as it must have thrilled the Ephesians and others when they heard it for the first time. The tremendous dignity of the believer's position is that they form a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the purpose of the temple. To provide a place where God can live in fellowship with his people. The church, he says, is that place. This temple where the Spirit of God dwells, his church, is a temple that we've been made a part of. Not merely made a part of in a way where we might say, well, it's a place I go I, and I attend, it's, it's a phys- physical building I go and visit, although the church does assemble in physical places. But the church is not a building, it's a people. But really more of in, a, in a way of being made part of and that we're an integral part of that structure of this temple that God is growing and building together with each of us being living stones fitted together by the Lord that make up this temple that he's wanting to dwell in by his spirit. The apostle Peter spoke into this spiritual reality, the spiritual truth of us being living stones in his first letter. Uh, Check out what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6. He said, coming to him, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. We are now integral parts in the spiritual house, the spiritual temple Jesus is building, his church. He remains the cornerstone. He's the centerpiece. He's the foundation of his church. But when we came to him in faith, he did something in us spiritually. He took a life that was dead and made us now living stones in his house. But that invitation to come is not an invitation to be a guest inside his home. 
but an important, strong, vibrant, living, structural part of his house, his temple built upon him. And in coming to him, he's now made, made us living stones as well, strong, useful, able to be chiseled and chipped and hammered on with great care and precision precision by our master architect, Jesus, to where he can fit us together seamlessly as he builds his house, his temple, which means he put us together for a reason. It's a temple where we get to be united together as a family. It's a temple where we get to worship and serve Jesus together. It's a temple where God dwells by his spirit but also a temple that would be an inviting place for others to come and find salvation and life and hope in Jesus too. The, the temple growing as more people put their faith in Jesus Christ. But check out what John Stott, this is the last quote I'll show you, uh, said about this closing section of Ephesians chapter 2. He wrote, The new temple is neither a material building nor a national shrine, nor has it a localized site. It is a spiritual building, God's household, and an international community embracing Gentiles as well as Jews. And it has a worldwide spread wherever God's people are to be found. This is where God dwells. He is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people, to his own new society. To them, he has pledged himself by a solemn covenant. He lives in them individually and as a community. He went on to say, It is marvelous to look back and trace the sequence of the apostles' teaching. He paints on a large canvas with bold brushstrokes. Once, he reminds his Gentile readers, You were alienated from God and from his people, but Christ died to reconcile you to uh, to both. So now you are no longer the aliens you were, but the kingdom over which God rules, the family which he loves, and the temple in which he dwells. More simply still, you were alienated. You have been uh, reconciled, and Christ has brought you home. It would be hard to exaggerate the grandeur of this vision. The new society God has brought into being is nothing short of a new creation, a new human race, whose characteristic is no longer alienation, but reconciliation. No longer division and hostility, but unity and peace. This new society, God rules and loves and lives in. That is the vision. And to that, we should say, Amen! <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for these truths. God, may your vision, may these things be true of us here, that we'd be founded on Christ alone, fitted together as, as you would desire, Lord, growing and being built together as your holy temple with your spirit dwelling in and among us, having your way with us and through us to glorify yourself and advance your kingdom. As Paul said in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, clearly there's more to that nearness Jesus has provided for us by his blood for us to continue to learn about and meditate on and worship him for. And these things that we've been made a part of should also give us a greater compassion and prayerfulness and boldness with those who are still far off and in need of Jesus. Because, man, don't we want everybody to be a part of the kingdom of God and a part of the family of God and a part of the temple of God? Because as we're reading these things, this is God's ideal. This is his desire. This is what he wants. And We're looking at maybe people around us or we see people in our lives and we're going, man, you're missing out. You're missing out. You think you have your people. You, 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 you think you've got your family. You think you've got your, your sort of temple, your sanctuary, but you're missing it. 
None of those things are truly fulfilling. None of them are going to be ever the thing that satisfies them in their lives because all of those things are found in and, and centered upon Jesus himself. And may God lead us in these truths. Lead us in how we interact with each other. Lead us in how we fit together as the temple of God, as the family of God, as citizens of the kingdom of God. Would it shape our priorities? Would it shape our perspectives? Would it shape our passions? Because if we're truly the temple of God, man, we should be the most passionate intentional like people to be around like people coming here there should be something different about this place different about our gathering different about us why because god has made us a holy temple a dwelling place for himself by his spirit the lord do it right god do it <laughs> and look you know this picture paul's painted for us that we made a part of, it's pretty special. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty profound. Like, there's a lot here to continue to unpack in, in your own lives personally. You know, not just becoming citizens of God, uh, God uh, not just becoming children of God, but becoming part of the temple of God. And I pray that more and more, God, God draws us into these things and, and helps us to live in the reality of them. But look, if you've joined us this morning, and you're going, look, like, that's great. Citizens and, you know, being a part of a family and being a part of a temple, like, that all sounds really cool. But if you're a stranger and a foreigner today to the things of the Lord, to, the, to these things that we've looked at, as I said, Jesus died to bring those who were far off near. So if there's ever, if there's any part of, in your life, in, for you spiritually, and you're going, I'm far off. I, I've been, I'm separated. I, I, I'm a foreigner and a stranger to these things. That this morning God's going, let's change that. Let's change that. And it, it all, the only thing it takes is for you to humble yourself. That's kind of the starting point. Humble yourself because your pride is always going to keep God at arm's length. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent of your sin. That means stop holding on to those things that are taking you away from the Lord. Turn towards God by faith. And surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not a 10-step program here. Just turn to the Lord. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. You pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the foundation that's been laid, which is just you, Jesus. Because if it was people, we'd have a hard time. If it was Peter, we'd have a really hard time. Because Peter blew it. Peter wasn't always that stable. But Lord, with you as our foundation, God, we couldn't have greater stability. We couldn't have a more enduring and secure foundation to build our lives and, our, and your church upon. And Jesus is you as our cornerstone that unites us together. Lord, we can have so many things that drive us apart, so many differences that just kind of make us disconnect from one another. And yet, Lord Jesus, to know that you died to make us one. Yes, you died to make us your own, but you died to make us one. And so, Lord, if there's anything in our lives where maybe this morning we're going, man, I've been dividing, I've been separating over dumb things. Maybe they haven't, didn't seem dumb at the time, but this morning, God, maybe you're revealing to people some things that need to be changed, some perspective perspectives that need to be changed. Lord, maybe we've, we've been okay with you hammering on us, chiseling on us, Lord, sanding us to, to make us those living stones in your house.
house, your temple. But God, we haven't wanted anybody else to, to be used by you in that capacity. And maybe, Lord, greater humility is what's needed. And maybe not just greater humility, but, Lord, just a greater, yield, greater yieldedness, Lord, to your work, Lord, through the lives of others, but also how you would want to use us in the lives of others, too. God, we want to be that place where your spirit, Lord, gladly dwells. You, Lord, having your way, moving freely, knitting us together, glorifying yourself, showing your glory, revealing your glory to the world around us. God, we long for that. We long to see those, Lord God, who are far off from you, Lord. Who are, who are not a part of your kingdom, not a part of your family, not a part of your temple, that, God, that they would find life and light and hope and salvation in Jesus. So, God, lead us. God, give us compassion. Give us a greater heart of prayerfulness and mindfulness and, and a greater boldness, God, with those around us, Lord, who don't know you yet. God, use us, Lord, in these days to be ambassadors of Christ ambassadors of our King. Lord, would we see more and more people brought into the family of God, that the building of God would grow even more. Lives snatched away from that path of destruction onto the path leading to life. So Lord, encourage your people today. God, maybe some are going, I, I know what kind of stone I am. And I, I need a lot of work. Maybe some people are going, I'm actually a pretty good stone. And this morning you're going, ah, you know, there's still some things needing to be done. But God, would you encourage, stir your people, God? Minister to your saints this morning, God? But Lord, if there's anybody that's joined us and they, they don't have a personal relationship with you, God, I just pray even now you'd be speaking to them. God, softening their hearts, God, just working on them, Lord. They'd see their need for you. See, Jesus, that you are the only Savior. And so if that's anybody today and you're going, that's me. I, I need Jesus. I need his salvation. I need his forgiveness. Would you raise your hand so I can pray for you if that's you and you're going, would you? Would you pray for me today? I, I want to be saved today. Anybody at all? Well, God, you know each heart. Lord, you continue working long after I'm done speaking. And so, God, keep, keep working, Lord, by your Spirit. And, Lord, as we sing these songs of praise to you, as we take of the communion elements, Lord Jesus, as we maybe get prayer, prayed for in the back, God, that you would have your way. Continue to have your way among us, Lord. Build us into that holy temple that you desire for us to be here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek. That the glory of Jesus, the fame of Jesus, the name of Jesus would be broadcast, Lord, all throughout the Diablo Valley. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.